Amen. Well, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 17. If, uh, if you were here on uh, last Sunday night when Barry Mitchell was uh, with us, he did an outstanding, the whole service was just terrific. But the first part of his service where he's talking about Jehovah or Yahweh in Hebrew being the name of God and so forth, there was just some really, really rich truths in there that he shared with us. And uh, I want to talk to you first of all, start with this evening by referring back to the story of, of uh, Abraham. Now, we know that Abraham is the father of faith, the same faith that Abraham used to receive the promises that God made him in impossible circumstances, naturally, is the example of faith that we're supposed to follow. Now, if you go back and look in the beginning where God started to appear to Abraham, back to Genesis chapter 12, he appears to him another couple of times. He appears to him in chapter 15 as well, several different times throughout his life. God appears, and every time it says, and the Lord appeared unto Abraham, or the Lord said unto Abraham, something to that effect, and it always uses the word Yahweh, or Jehovah. Now, in the Hebrew, Jehovah is defined as the self-existent one. The root of the word Hebrew is the word to be, which is where the translation comes in uh, Exodus when God's talking to Moses and says, I am that I am. So the, the Jews define that as Jehovah, I mean, define the name Jehovah as the self-existent one. Well, that would certainly be true. But there's something unique about this in chapter 17 because God identifies himself in a different way. You know, it's an interesting thing. I don't know if you've ever had much experience with talking to people about God but if you talk to people and use the name God or the title God, whichever you want to call it, you'll find that people have different ideas about who God is. I would dare say that each one of us in this room has a different idea about who God is. Because there are certain attributes or parts of your experience with God or your knowledge of the word that will stand out to you more than it will be to me or somebody else perhaps. And so we all have our own picture of God. Well, Abraham's got his own picture of God. He knows God's the one that prospered him, made him rich, very rich in silver and cattle and gold. He knows God has delivered him. He knows God has protected him. He knows that God has done a lot of wonderful things for him. But the most important promise that Abraham received ever from God goes back to the first time God ever appeared to him and said, I'll make of thee a great nation. Well, he had to understand that that means children, meant children. He had to have understood that God intended for him to have children. Now in chapter 17, 24 years have gone by. The first time he, God appeared to Abraham, he was 75. Now he's 99. And God appears to him and speaks to him in a different way about himself. God speaking about himself. Notice in verse 1 it says, And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Now, the word Lord is the word Jehovah in the Hebrew. But now Jehovah appears and identifies something else about himself that has to be critical. It has to be a critical element in Abraham's faith to overcome the impossible circumstances of his age relative to his ability to have children. 
so that he could have the faith for us to follow as our example. And God calls himself the Almighty God. In the, uh, in the Hebrew, this translates, or this Almighty God is translated from the Hebrew, El Shaddai. We say it's the God that's more than enough. But the point that is, that's being made, whichever way you want to call it, the God that's more than enough, or the Almighty God, the Almighty God is still a good translation because it carries on the meaning. God is identifying himself to Abram as able to do what Abraham has given up on. In other words, God appears to Abram when he's 99 years old and says to him, in effect, I'm bigger than you think I am. I'm big enough to do what you have given up on. Now, the same thing's true in chapter 18. Several months later, God appears again. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord appears to him and says, in, uh, and asks Abram. By then, he's, called, he's changed his name to Abraham. And he says, where's Sarah, your wife? For she will become the mother of a child that will become a great nation. Well, Sarah's listening in on, uh, on the other side of the tent or wherever it is, through the curtains or whatever. And she laughs within her heart, not out loud, but she laughs within herself and says, here I'm 90 years old and I'm going to have a child. And the Lord brings it to Abraham's, Abraham's attention and he says, why did Sarah laugh? And then he asks a question. This is Genesis chapter 18, verse 14. Here's the question the Lord asks. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, why would he ask that question? He's addressing a specific uh, situation, specific condition, specific circumstance. There would be no purpose whatsoever for God to say, is anything too hard for me? If Sarah wasn't thinking this is too hard for him. This is impossible. This is too hard to be done. Folks, I've got a question for you. And here it is. How big is God to you? How big is God to you? Now, however big God is to you has no relative, uh, has no relation whatsoever to how big God is. God is who he is and is beyond anything any of us can comprehend. But the question is, how big is he to you? And I believe that's what God is addressing to both Abraham and Sarah in the few months prior to them becoming pregnant and having the son Isaac of promise. How big am I to you? Now, we could talk about a lot of things in the Old Testament. And I think some of the stories of the Old Testament we hear enough or so much that we just take them for granted and don't give any real thought to what happened. Like, for example, Moses parting the Red Sea and the children of Israel going over on dry ground. We've heard that so much. It's like, yeah, well, God parted the Red Sea. Ho-hum. We hear about manna in the wilderness. We hear the story of Elijah pronouncing a drought upon Israel that creates a great famine for three and a half years. And God fed him by the brook Cherith. And Raven brought him food twice a day. We think, yeah, well, that was cool, but ho-hum. Then when the brook dried up, he told him to go to Zarephath to a certain widow who fed him for the remainder of the three and a half years. We don't know exactly how long. We know the duration of the famine was three and a half years. It says that the meal in the barrel stayed. The handful of meal never ran out for the duration of the famine. So you've got to figure that's at least a year or two. 
maybe more. And so we see that and we say, wow, that's great. God really took care of him. Ho-hum. But I want you to look with me to some things to remind you and encourage you, perhaps, about how, God, how big God really is. Second Kings chapter 3, Jehoram is the son of Ahab. Ahab was the wickedest of the kings of Israel. Jehoram is taken over in his place. Ahab's dead. And Jehoshaphat is king of Judah. The tribes are, are divided. And Jehoram, the king of Israel, calls for Jehoshaphat to help him to attack the Moabites. And they team up with the king of Edom. Now on the map, Israel and Judah are on the west side, left if you're facing the map, of the Sea of Galilee and the um, Jordan River, all the way down to the Dead Sea. Edom is south of the Dead Sea, due south of the Dead Sea. And Moab is where we know of as Jordan today. It's on the east side of the Dead Sea. So it tells us that Jehoshaphat agreed, without praying, without seeking God, he agreed to go with him. We'll start reading in verse 7. It says, And he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, this is Jehoram, sent to Jehoshaphat the king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Wilt thou go with me against Moab to battle? And he said, I will go up. I am as thou art, my people as thy people, and my horses as thy horses. And he said, Which way shall we go up? And he answered, to him through the way or the way through the wilderness of Edom. In other words, they're going to go south around the Dead Sea to the east side of the Dead Sea, which is the land of Moab. So the king of Israel went and the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they fetched a compass of seven days' journey. Fetched a compass just means they went on a circuitous route. They didn't take a direct line. They just get, kind of went roundabout. Seven days, and there was no water for the host or for the cattle that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, that the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them in the hand of Moab. Now that that scripture just amuses me completely. Here's Jehoram making his own plans. And when they don't work out saying, God sent us here to kill us. I wonder how many people do that in their life. Their plans don't work out and so they blame God for it. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? Now, I think in hindsight, Jehoshaphat probably wished he'd found the prophet before they started this campaign. But nevertheless, one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. And by the way, this would be Jehoram's father, Ahab's mortal enemy. The servant of his mortal enemy. Elijah was Ahab's mortal enemy. And now here's Elisha taking his place. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, what have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. And the king of Israel said unto him, nay, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Here's another thing that people do all the time. They've got their mind made up. So when the word of the Lord comes, whether it's scripture or prophecy or whatever the case may be, 
they're not in a position to hear it. And a lot of people that say they want to hear from God really don't. They've already got their mind made up. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. I'd ignore you completely if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, thus saith the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. For thus saith the Lord, you shall not see wind, neither shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water that you may drink both you and your cattle and your beasts. Now, folks, I don't know if you have given this any thought. But in land where there's no water for at least seven days journey, that's not going to be easy digging. It's going to be some of the hardest digging there is. But the word of the Lord is you're going to see water even though it doesn't rain no wind verse 18 and this is but a light thing in the sight of the lord he will deliver the moabites also into your hand now how many of you would think without knowing the end of the story if you were there hearing what you've just heard how many of you would think this is going to be a light thing for the valley to be full of water so much so that you need ditches to catch the water to hold the water so that everybody has time and opportunity to drink What is it about any of that that's a like thing? If it's not going to rain, how's the water going to come? Now, we know the end of the story, so we can stand here and make our profession of faith and say, I ought to just believe God no matter what. But would you? And you shall smite every fence city and every choice city and you shall fell every good tree and stomp all the wells of water and mar every good piece of land with stones. And it came to pass in the morning when the meat offering was offered that behold there came water by the way of Edom. That means south of the Dead Sea. Folks on the map, there's no sea in that direction. There's no body of water in that direction. It's a long way away from the Mediterranean Sea. If it had come from the Mediterranean Sea, there would be some kind of historical record of the damage that it would have had to do, the tidal wave that it would have caused this thing to go so far inland, some 50 miles inland at least, would certainly be recorded in history. And there's no record of anything. And it came to pass in the morning when the meat offering was offered that, behold, there came water by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings were come up to fight against them, they gathered all that were able to put on armor and upward and stood in the border. And they rose up early in the morning, and the sun shone upon the water, and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings are surely slain, and they have smitten one another. Now therefore Moab to the spoil. And when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and smote the Moabites So they fled before them, but they went forward smiting the Moabites even in their own country and did exactly what God told them to do. They destroyed the cities and marred the wells and everything else. Folks, I want you to understand, God did the impossible without without even any explanation of where the water came from. And not only that, but he did it in such a way so that the sun shining on the water caused the enemies of Israel 
to think something other than the truth, to think that the kings of Israel and Judah and Edom had all fought with one another and destroyed one another, so that they came upon the camp in such a manner that they were destroyed. Let me show you another one over in Second Kings chapter... Um, I don't want to read the whole story. Let's start in chapter 7. The previous chapter tells about how that the city of Samaria was besieged by their enemies, the Syrians, I believe. And it went on for a long period of time, and so there was no water and there was no food, and it was terrible situations. So much so that the people of the city had become cannibals. The king found out just the day before that there was a mother, two mothers that made a pact. Let's kill and eat your son today and we'll kill and eat my son tomorrow. And the the second day came, tomorrow came, and the first mother reneged on on the deal. That's pretty dire circumstances beyond our comprehension. And so it says that he sent for a messenger to kill Elisha. Everybody thinks the man of God is the problem. But Elisha says in verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. The, uh, the previous chapter goes on to tell us how that uh, um, a donkey's head, which is no meat on, was going for 40 pieces of silver or something like that. And just a fourth part... A bird poop was going for five pieces of silver. I don't know what you do with bird poop, whether it's a fourth or the whole thing. I'm I'm not real clear on that. But everybody's scrambling, willing to pay anything to get any kind of sustenance whatsoever. So Elisha says, tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel. That's kind of the equivalent to a penny. And two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Then a lord on whose hand the king leaned answered, here's one of the advisors of the king, answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but it shall not eat thereof. This guy can't believe the prophecy of the, that Elisha has given. And there were four leprous men at the entering end of the gate, and they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city. And we shall die there. And if we sit here outside the city, we'll die also. Now, therefore, come, let us fall upon the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, the only thing we can do is die. We're going to do that anyway. And they rose up in the twilight to go into the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots. And a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. God destroyed the children of Israel's enemies, scattered them with a sound. How big is God to you? Now, folks, we could stand here all night and read story after story after story and wouldn't get to them all. But you know as well as I do 
How that God parted the Jordan River for the children of Israel to go over on dry ground to take the promised land. You know as well as I do that the children of Israel overcame the engineering marvel of the day, the walls of the city of Jericho. The the most highly defense city known in that time in history with the shouts of his people. Just sound. You also remember that in the wilderness, when the sons of Korah rose up against Moses and Aaron, they wanted to be prophets and be spokesmen for God too. Moses stood before them and says, now God will choose whose side he's on. And if he chooses to be against you and you die a natural death, then I know what everybody's going to say. Sooner or later, everybody's going to start saying, well, maybe that was just coincidence. But if the earth opens up and swallows everybody that's against Moses and then closes up around them, then you'll know it's God. So the earth opened up and swallowed the enemies of Moses and closed closed up on them again. How big is God to you? When the children of Israel were taking the promised land, it says there there was one day where they fought ten kings in one battle. They had been winning all the battles that every time they faced an enemy. And so the enemies, or the inhabitants of the promised land, I guess I should say, banded together and created an army that was bigger than anything anybody had ever seen. And the Lord spoke to Joshua and says, don't be afraid of them, for I've delivered them into your hands. And it tells us that they started winning the battle. But then in the midst of the battle, the Lord caused hailstones of great size to fall upon the enemies of Israel. And it says that more people died from the hailstones than died in the battle. How big is God to you? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Before that battle was over, the Bible tells us the story about how the sun and the moon stood still to give Joshua more time to destroy the enemies of Israel. You remember Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul? God changed his life and the course of the world with a light and a sound from heaven. How big is God to you? Is anything too hard for him? When I was working with Brother Hagen one year at camp meeting, T.L. Osborne was one of the speakers. And I heard him tell his testimony and the story of his life and ministry in a way that I'd never heard it before. I knew a little bit about him, not a whole lot, but I knew a little bit about him and I'd read some of his books and so forth. But he told it as it had happened to him. So I'm getting this firsthand. He said that after he was saved and filled with the Holy Ghost, he had on his heart to go to the world. So he went to India and he ran into Muslims. He was shocked because the Muslims loved God As much as he loved God, they thought they were worshiping the same one, I guess. But he didn't have anything other than the Bible to try to convince them about Jesus. Found out they already knew about Jesus and they were okay with him. But then when he started trying to reach them with the Bible, 
They weren't interested in that because they didn't believe the Bible was the word of God. They had the Koran instead. So he came back from India. He said, I didn't know how to reach the people that I was going to try to reach. So he came back with no results whatsoever. None. And Jesus appeared to him in his hotel room some months after he was back home. He had given up the idea of being in the ministry. And Jesus appeared to him in his hotel room. And he said, there were many things that changed my life about that. He said, but the biggest one was that I knew that I knew that I knew that he was alive. He said, I saw him just like I'd see a man standing before me. He said, so I knew he was alive. He said, that changed the way I looked at the Bible. Because if Jesus really was alive in a way that I'd never accepted or recognized before, then everything the Bible says about him had to be true. So just from that, he saw that God gave us power over the devil. He saw that God's will was to heal the sick, that Jesus healed everybody that came to him, and that Jesus told the, his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel. He said, so when I found those things, decided they were true, then there was only one thing left to do, and that's go to the world. He said, if I ever received a call to the ministry, I'm not aware of it. I just had a desire to go and do what the Bible said to do. So he said, we wanted to get back to India, but we didn't have the money. He said, we mortgaged the car that we had, and it got us as far as Jamaica. So we went to the mission field, went to Jamaica, and we stayed there for 13 weeks. He said, in those 13 weeks, we got 13,900 people saved. And we'd lay hands on the sick every night. He was married at the time. So he said we'd have one line going out one direction from the platform, one line going out the other direction from the platform. He said Daisy and I would stay there and pray for people till 1 o'clock in the morning, laying hands on each one of them. Then he said this about the results. He said we had 100 confirmed cases of people that were totally blind healed. He said we had 125 cases of deaf mutes that were healed. He said, we kept other records, but those were the only numbers that he gave about the campaign. That's pretty good for any period of time, 13 weeks or not. So he said, well, we ran out of money, so we had to come home. He said, when we got home, the word had spread. And he said, F.F. Bosworth, the author of the book, Christ the Healer, contacted us, found out we were back in the States, contacted us, had heard about what was going on, or what had gone on. At that time, Brother Bosworth was working with William Branham in his crusades and campaigns. He said, Brother Branham's holding a meeting in Flint, Michigan, but he's worn himself out. There were several times during the ministry of William Branham that he had to take time off and recuperate. He just overworked himself and so forth. So he said, we want you to come and conduct the services. Brother Branham needs the time off. So he went to Flint, Michigan, picked up in the middle of Brother Branham's service. And he's preparing to preach to the people. Brother Osborne said he was really nervous about it. He said, I know how to work things on the mission field, but he said, I don't know how to do things in America. He said, so I prayed and prayed and prayed and got a good message to deliver to the people. 
He said, the night of the service, I'm preaching to the people and God is talking to me. He said that the first night they called everybody up that was deaf or partially deaf, had any problem with their hearing, brought them all up on the platform. There were 53 of them. 50 of them were healed on the spot. They checked everybody's hearing with somebody's wristwatch. You may remember wristwatches used to tick. Couldn't use that now. Couldn't do that now to test it out. But they had evidence that 50 of the 53 were healed on the spot. And the other three were, came back and testified that they were healed and were tested out, restored in the, uh, their hearing before the end of the campaign two days later. He said, the next night, I'm preaching and the Lord's preaching to me. He said, I'm having a conversation with the Lord all the time. I'm preaching a message. And the Lord started asking him a question. And here's the whole point I was trying to get to. The Lord asked him this. He said, how big's a miracle? Lord, I don't know what you mean. What do you mean, how big's a miracle? He said, well, if you ask me to do something in, in my name, it's me that does it, right? Yeah, that's right. He said, you don't have anything to do with it. It's all me. Yeah, that's right. He said, well, how much power does it take to heal one person that you pray for? He said, well, Lord, I don't know. It's your power. It's all you anyway. So the Lord said, well, that's right. If it's me that's exercising the power, then how much power would it take to heal two at a time? Could I heal two at a time? Brother Osmond said, well, yeah, sure. You could do that. He said, what about three at a time? Well, yeah, sure, you could do that. He said, what about five at a time? He said, yeah, Lord, you could do that. Brother Osmond said, at this point, I'm thinking about Abraham and the story of when he's trying to get God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. Will you spare it for 50? About 40, 30, 20, 10? Finally, the Lord asked him, he said, well, what about 50 at a time? He said, yeah, Lord, you could do that. He said, well, what about everybody? He said, yeah, Lord, you could do that. Well, he didn't do anything about it during that meeting. It was the last night of the Branham Crusade. But he went overseas. The next time he went overseas, he's trying to think about how they could incorporate this into the open air campaigns that they're holding and such. And they had been using, up to that point in time, healing cards. He said, but it got to where when people knew about the results that we got, that people would fight for the healing cards. And so you'd have fist fist fights for people trying to get a hold of a card, that type of thing. He said, we thought we found a way to overcome that. We delivered the cards to the police and let them hand them out. But then we found that the police started selling them to their rich friends for five or ten bucks a piece. So he said, even though we were very much into organization, we realized that the reason that the Lord was speaking to us about doing things a different way was for reasons like this. So he said, with fear and trembling, but knowing what God had told me in that meeting in Flint, Michigan, 
we gave our call for people to be saved. And then we asked everybody that wanted to be healed to come forward. And they did. He said, I prayed one prayer, one simple prayer for everybody. And he said, we had the most glorious testimonies of healings, signs and wonders and miracles that anybody's ever seen. Now, folks, in recorded history, that's the first time that there's any record of praying in mass for people to be healed that had never been done on the, on the mission field before. And it all came about because God asked one man, how big is a miracle? Doesn't that sound like what God asked Abraham? Is anything too hard for the Lord? How big is God to you? Now, the other side of this is very simple, but I think it bears note as well. Why did Abraham get to the place where God had to tell him, I'm the almighty God. I'm the almighty God. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Let's start reading in verse 19. I believe Paul is the author, but it's the Holy Ghost speaking to us. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast. The profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. Abraham had turned loose. Abraham had turned loose to the promise of the son. And the only thing we can attribute that to is time. It's been 24 years. When God first made the promise, Abraham was 75. Now he's 99. Surely if it was going to happen, it would have happened when he was younger. Surely if it's what God meant, it would have happened when he was younger and his body was still functioning in a way where he and Sarah both could have children. Folks, the way the devil got involved in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, the way he still tries to get involved and mess things up for you now, is always the same. He challenges the integrity of God's word. He said, yeah, God said it, but he didn't mean it. God said it. The Bible says by his stripes you're healed. But that doesn't mean it's for you. Jesus said whatsoever you ask in my name. The father will give to you or I will do it. But that's not really what he meant. The Bible says God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But he didn't really mean that in the area of finances. The devil always attacks the same way. He challenges the integrity of God's word. And if he's successful, then we turn loose of our profession of faith. We quit saying what God's word says. That's what God has to change for Abraham and Sarah. For his plan to come to pass. The plan coming to pass doesn't depend on God. It depends on Abraham and Sarah. 
God's plan for your life doesn't depend on him. It coming to pass doesn't depend on him. It depends on you. If you're going to have everything the Bible says belongs to you, it doesn't depend on God. He's already done his part. It depends on you. In Matthew chapter 9, it tells us about two blind men that came to Jesus after following him in the way. And Jesus said, what will you have me to do for you? And they said, Lord, that we may receive our sight. And Jesus asked him a question. He said, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Do you believe I'm able to do this? Only time we have record of Jesus questioning somebody's belief in his ability. Only time. Do you believe I'm able to do this? There must have been something about his situation that would cause Jesus to pose that question. There must have been something about them or their situation, their condition, that would require them to declare their faith in his ability. They said, yes, Lord, we believe. And Jesus answered and said, according to your faith, be it unto you. According to your faith, be it unto you. How big is God to you? Is God big enough to do what you want him to do? If you don't settle that, then you're going to spend the rest of your life begging for something you don't really expect or believe in. How big is God to you? Is what you need him to do too big for him? If so, I've got good news for you. He's still the almighty God. He's still the God that brings water from nowhere. Causes walls to fall from sh- with shouts. Causes your enemies to flee from a sound. Changes the course of the world with a light and a voice. He's still that same God today. How big is God to you? He's way bigger than whatever problem you and I face. Way bigger. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your faithfulness. Lord, we know that there are times in all of our lives where we've been at least tempted to believe that the problem is too big. And it may be too big for us, but there is no problem that's too big for you. Thank you, Lord, that you're big enough to make your word true and to bring it to pass for each and every one of us. We believe in you, Lord. We thank you that you deal with us according to our faith. Therefore, we declare that we are made righteous by the blood of Jesus. We were healed by his stripes. We were made rich by the punishment that he took upon himself. Your peace is ours. Well-being in every area is, is ours and belongs to us. We thank you for the wisdom of God that's made, that Jesus has made unto us. That we hear and know the voice of God. And a stranger's voice we will not follow. We thank you, Father, that the Holy Ghost is given to us. To bring to our remembrance all that the word has said. 
to show us things to come, to guide us into all truth. We thank you that he guides us into the truth of healing, the truth of provision, the truth of peace, the truth of whatever we need. We trust in you, Lord. We have faith in you. So we will hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For you are faithful who promised. We will cast not away our confidence, which has great recompense of reward. We say that we take sides with the word. We agree with what Jesus said. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, that man, that woman, that boy or girl, will have whatsoever he saith. We believe our words come to pass, because you are faithful, and nothing is too hard for you. So we thank you, Father. We give you this praise and glorify your name for the answer before we see it. We say healing is ours. We say peace is ours. We say provision is mine. We say that our needs are met in Jesus' name. We say that we have wisdom and direction. We say that we always know what to do because the greater one lives in us. We say the Holy Ghost is at work in our lives revealing your plan and your purpose for each one of us and we thank you that it's done in Jesus precious name can you agree with that amen amen how big is God to you he needs to be the biggest thing there is amen because he really is the biggest thing there is Amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good. And his mercy endures forever. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. You're dismissed.